You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, one of my favorite places in our home is the dining table in our kitchen. We have a built-in kitchen nook in the corner of our uh, kitchen, and it seats about six snugly, and I love being in that place because usually it means that I'm enjoying one of Kimber's fantastic meals. She is an incredibly good cook, and as you can tell by my body shape, I take a little too much joy in that. But you know, more than meals are served at our table, life happens there. It's where our family gathers at least once a day to tell our stories, to share our hopes, to complain about our disappointments and injustices, to discuss the news of the day, to make plans, to coordinate responsibilities. It's where our life together is negotiated. We encounter each other in that space, and there may be no other more important place in our home. Well, for the past five weeks, we've been meandering through the gospel of Luke, examining personal encounters with Jesus as he intersects various people's lives, oftentimes at the table. Jesus is a person on the move, but he always makes time for meaningful, life-changing interactions, taking a time out to enjoy the hospitality of someone's dinner table. Well, today we examine another one of these encounters as Jesus is passing through Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. He turns his face towards Jerusalem for the last time, and he's determined to make his way there to fulfill his unique mission. But he's not so focused on his journey that he's prevented from being interruptible. And it's this interruption in his journey towards Jerusalem that we take time to turn our attention to today. Open with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. And if you're using our pew Bibles, you can find it on page 854. Luke chapter 19. We're going to start at verse 1, and I'll read it for us. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. 
Well, I've got five what questions that come out of this passage that I'd like for us to explore. Five what questions. First, what is a Zacchaeus? Second, what got him up that tree? Third, what got him out of that tree? Fourth, what happened at Zacchaeus' house? And five, so what? How does this story intersect our story? So our first question, what is a Zacchaeus? Notice I don't ask the question, who is Zacchaeus? Because we really don't have much insight into his life, apart from what he is. First of all, he's a Jew. And second, in stark contrast, he's a very wealthy tax collector. Actually, he's more of a customs agent than he is an IRS agent. You see, in the Roman colonies of first century Palestine, the Romans kept their bureaucratic footprint rather small. Instead of building their own tax bureaucracy, they would outsource the tax collection role of government. And so Zacchaeus, who must have been a fairly shrewd businessman, he negotiated the contract to become the head customs official in Jericho. Now, Jericho was a very prosperous trading city, and you can well imagine that if you have the contract to collect customs in that very prosperous city, you're going to do very well. And we can also imagine that this was not a popular position among his fellow Jews. To do well as the head of customs in Jericho also meant that you were likely an instrument of graft and corruption. Zacchaeus was part of the machine, and his immense wealth betrayed him. He was a Jewish agent of the Roman Empire, and he was disowned and despised by the Jewish community in Jericho. He was public enemy number one. That's a Zacchaeus. Jewish, immensely successful, deeply despised. Second question. What got Zacchaeus up that tree? You have to admit that's a strange occurrence. This occurrence, this spectacle must have seemed quite ridiculous to onlookers. Well, the most obvious answer is that he was short and he needed to borrow some height. But what really motivated him was intrigue. You see, the passage in Luke that immediately precedes this passage tells the story of Jesus healing a blind beggar on the outskirts of Jericho in the suburbs. And perhaps, in fact, it was likely that word of that miracle had reached Zacchaeus and he was intrigued by this one who could make a blind man see. He had heard about this person, Jesus, and he deeply desired to see him. In fact, this intrigue was powerful enough to get a grown man up a tree. Well, the third question, what got Zacchaeus out of that tree? And this is where Jesus turns the tables on this event. You see, Zacchaeus has this deep desire to see Jesus for himself, but when Jesus actually comes upon the place where Zacchaeus is, is something extremely surprising happens in that place. Yes, Zacchaeus sees Jesus from his perch in the tree, 
But more importantly, Jesus sees Zacchaeus. And that changes everything. What begins with intrigue moves to invitation. Jesus takes the initiative. He invites himself to dinner at Zacchaeus' house. It is this backward invitation that initiates the life-changing encounter that Zacchaeus could not have possibly anticipated. Now, this is very impolite, don't you think? I mean, who invites themselves over to your house? No, perhaps last week, if you had a 52-inch screen, LCD screen, around Super Bowl time, maybe somebody might invite themselves over. But this is not only impolite, it's impolitic. We, we see the crowd here murmuring and mumbling and grumbling and whining. They don't approve of Jesus' chosen association. There's a crisis of faith. You can hear them thinking, why does this good rabbi who has the power to give sight to the blind, choose to hang out with Jericho's scumbag-in-chief. Does he not know who this crook is? Does he not know the nature of his dirty business? This is not right. Well, that leads to the fourth question. What happens at Zacchaeus' house? There are no details in this text, unfortunately. But this encounter, we can certainly see the outcome of it. It caused a massive turnaround in Zacchaeus' life. In verse 8 here in the text, Zacchaeus gives witness to a radical life change. This transformation occurs at the core of his being, at the very substance of his identity. It has to do with the relationship that he has with his wealth and how he practices his vocation. This represents a momentous reversal. This is not life change at the margins. This is a revolution of the heart. Zacchaeus' identity is built upon his wealth and his status as an agent of the empire. Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus literally turns his world upside down. So what do you suppose happened in that encounter at Zacchaeus' house that led to such radical transformation. We're left to use our imagination. So help me out here. Let's just use our imagination. Let's exercise a little imagination here. First of all, we see Jesus and Zacchaeus approaching this big house in a prominent neighborhood. They They settle into the main room of the house. You know, in first century Palestinian homes, there's not a lot of furniture in the house. It's usually a big room that is lined with these beautiful fabric pillows. And it's covered, the floor is covered by this rich, deep carpet. And you can imagine them settling in, reclining into this carpet with the pillows. And the hostess comes, and perhaps tea is served, or the dark, syrupy Arabic coffee, or perhaps a fine wine is served. Bunches of grapes, almonds, Olives, you know, the fruit of that area come as hors d'oeuvres. And then finally, the main dish, a heaping plate of rice covered in roasted lamb. And I imagine a time of very personal sharing between the two of them. I don't think that this encounter 
was an opportunity where Jesus spoke at Zacchaeus, delivering a preached message at him. I imagine Jesus questioning Zacchaeus about his life and his family. I can see Jesus leaning in as Zacchaeus shares his story. Jesus listens actively to hear the pain of alienation that Zacchaeus must have experienced having been cut off from his core community, the Jews. I imagine Jesus speaking into that woundedness with the good news of the kingdom of God. That the God of the universe himself is seeking Zacchaeus out. Seeking him out with a profound love that promises to completely reshape his life. I suggest this because of the clues that come out of Jesus' statement right here in verses 9 and 10. He says, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Salvation literally means the kingdom of God has come to this place. In his encounter with Jesus, Zacchaeus had occasion to explore his story in light of God's story, the bigger story. And Zacchaeus is given opportunity to reimagine his life in light of that story. He's offered an opportunity to refashion himself, to take off the old way of being that was determined by his wealth and status and was propped up by a vocation of corruption and to put on the new self that's reoriented around the person of the Lord of Lords himself, Jesus Christ and shaped by the kingdom values of generosity and justice. The hold of the empire was displaced by the invitation of the kingdom, and life will never, ever be the same. Jesus does one more very important thing in his closing statement on Zacchaeus. Jesus reclaims Zacchaeus for the community. He gives Zacchaeus back to his Jewish community. He says, today the kingdom of God has come to this place because Zacchaeus too is a what? A son of Abraham. In this statement, Jesus indicates that this transformation is just not merely a personal transformation. It also has communal ramifications. Jesus signals here to the surrounding Jewish community that while at one time Zacchaeus was cut off from that community, he was now to be restored to it. This is a word also directly to Zacchaeus that he cannot live into his new identity as a solo operator. He needs the support and friendship and accountability of the God-centered community. And Jesus, too, is speaking directly to the God-centered community, being clear that they too must now embrace this brother as one of their own. Well, that's quite a story. Intrigue, invitation, transformation. And it leads us to our final question, our final what question. So what? In what way does this story suggest itself in our story? Well, I got to thinking, I realized that in some ways these three elements 
intrigue, invitation, transformation. These three elements are aspects of my story. I grew up as an only child in a divorced, broken home. I nurtured in that context a very strong, independent streak, and I was extremely self-centered. By the time I was 17 or 18, I had become a fully committed hedonist. I did what I wanted. And what I wanted generally wasn't very good or healthy. I used people. I used my friends. I used strangers for my own personal ends. I, I was an accomplished athlete. I was popular. I was a leader. From all appearances, I was a fairly successful kid. But in reality, I had a bent and twisted soul. And I lived completely for myself and on my own terms. I suppose you could say I, I, my life could be characterized as I was a taker. Well, by the time I headed off to college that fall as a freshman at the University of Michigan, I was pretty committed to living life on the wild side. I intended to play college hockey at Michigan. I didn't get this ugly by accident. I, I, worked, I worked at this. And I had the vision of becoming a big-time college athlete and enjoying all the trappings that came along with that. So I got settled in there, got through Athletes Orientation Week, and the first week of class I'm walking down the hallway in East Quad, and at the end of the hallway is this bulletin board, and in the middle of this bulletin board is a bright neon yellow flyer that says, InterVarsity Picnic. Now, I didn't see Christian fellowship in tiny print anywhere on that flyer. I missed that. So much for truth in advertising. Well, I thought, hmm, inner varsity. My coaches didn't say anything about a picnic. I thought, this sounds kind of athletic-y. I, kind of, I, I envisioned an event where all the varsity teams at Michigan would come together for a big picnic. I thought, oh, that would be so great. And secretly I was thinking, maybe I could meet one of the varsity women's volleyball players. So I went. Total ambush. <laughs> that picnic was the beginning of a radical reorienting of my life. And it centered around an authentic encounter with Jesus. Now, I didn't have a vision. I wasn't visited by Jesus in a dream, but instead I met a group of extraordinary people who had in common a deep, personal love relationship with Jesus Christ. They knew Jesus as their Lord and Savior and companion and friend. And I was intrigued to discover the attractive attributes that I found in their lives. And I had never experienced anything like this before. Through their genuine love and friendship, and as they continually and sometimes obnoxiously invited themselves into my life, I, in turn, was invited into their community. And they were a people of the book. They introduced me to Scripture. And in Scripture, I encountered for the first time the authentic Jesus that previously I had no idea 
existed. I experienced him for myself. And transformation began. And as they say, the rest is history. These stories are fundamentally stories that describe spiritual formation. Or in other words, the process of becoming formed and shaped by the living Lord Jesus Christ. And as I reflect on the process of spiritual formation, as I, as I think about what it is, what's actually involved in spiritual formation, how that actually happens in our lives, I see the same dynamics of Zacchaeus' story at work in it. Spiritual formation in our lives involves intrigue, invitation, transformation. Now, I have to be honest. As I delved into studying this passage in preparation for this message, I was surprised by the discovery of intrigue as an element of Zacchaeus' story. It was his intrigue with Jesus that opened Zacchaeus' life up and that put him in a place of intersection with Jesus. And I got to reflecting about our society and most specifically about my not-yet-Christian friends. And it seems that in our society that there is a fundamental lack of intrigue with all things Christian, as if we've been vaccinated by a weakened strain of Jesus that makes us resistant to the real thing. Many of my not-yet-Christian friends have been turned off by someone or something that they've experienced as being associated with Jesus. We've all heard the statement, Oh God, protect me, save us from your followers. In fact, perhaps we even uttered that prayer on an occasion or two. And unfortunately, Jesus is guilty by association. It seems that society has a low-grade Jesus aversion because we think we know all that we need to know. And it doesn't inspire. It doesn't intrigue. The renowned English author Dorothy Sayers writes, quote, The people who hanged Christ never, to do them justice, they never accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and to surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. Where is the source of intrigue in our society that would cause us to climb up a proverbial tree to see Jesus? I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would unleash a Jesus virus among us for which there is no vaccine. I pray we would catch it and become a, a source of Jesus intrigue, a community of Jesus intrigue in our society. Well, invitation follows intrigue, and Jesus presents us with an invitation. He says, the Son of Man, the living Lord, has come to seek the lost. And that is incredible good news. This is the key dynamic of spiritual formation. Jesus initiates. He takes the first step. He sees us where we are. And he invites himself over to our house.
He invites himself into our lives. And it is only for us to receive him, to take him in, to return the invitation with hospitality of spirit. And this work of hospitality involves some key practices. Everyone who practices hospitality knows that when you take someone in, there are certain things that must be done. The most important of which is to create a space where you can attend to your guest. The the essence of hospitality is not to have a clean house or to set an elaborate table or to fix a fancy feast. It is to give undivided attention to your guest. Wasn't that the key point that Jesus was trying to make with Martha? And the practices of spiritual hospitality involve creating attentive space. And I'm convinced and quite honestly convicted that regular focused time spent in the Bible and in prayer creates that attentive space. It's as simple and as difficult as that. In that focused space of Bible study and prayer, Jesus enters in and takes form in our life. And that's the very stuff of spiritual formation. Encounter leads to transformation. And transformation literally means the process of being formed. And if we truly respond to Christ's invitation to come and enter into our life then we will be transformed. Salvation will come to our house. The kingdom of God will be the shaping dynamic of our lives. There's no way around it. And being transformed involves two things. First, being given to a community. And second, to live towards the world in light of a new identity. That's Zacchaeus's story, and it's ours as well. Part of God's design of transformation in our lives is to be given in community to one another. That's why small groups are so important in the life of UPC. It is the central place in the life of this large congregation where we can walk together as the people of God, where we can be known and where we can know one another as brothers and sisters. It's a place of mutual support, of friendship and accountability. Zacchaeus was proclaimed a son of Abraham by Jesus as a way of indicating that he and the community of faith belonged to one another. Transformation involves giving ourselves to one another in community. It also means living with new intention towards the world. For Zacchaeus, his encounter with Jesus meant a radical reordering of his world, a a dramatic redefinition of his mission and purpose. He gave witness to the transforming work of Jesus in his life by redefining his relationship to his wealth, taking hold of a new sense of mission, literally giving half of everything that he possessed for the uplift of the poor. And he reframed his sense of purpose by pledging to pursue justice as a fundamental aspect of his vocation, to make restitution for the evils he perpetrated on the community, and to commit to live justly 
moving forward. Intrigue. Invitation. Transformation. These are the dynamics of spiritual formation that we witness in Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus. And perhaps they're the same dynamics that are work in our lives as well. As a pastoral leader here at UPC, I pray regularly for this congregation, for all of you. I hope you don't find that as a surprise. And this is the content of my prayer. Let me tell you exactly what I'm praying for all of us, the people of God, known as University Presbyterian Church. First of all, I pray that we would continue to focus our lives in Jesus Christ. Continue to focus our lives in Jesus Christ, intrigued enough to expectantly be looking for Him, deeply desiring to see Him in our midst, and actively responding to his invitation to take form in our lives. I pray that we would be a people transformed as we give ourselves to one another in life-changing community, to be shaped and influenced and formed by the Spirit of Jesus as we share our lives with one another. And finally, I pray that we would be a people transformed as we discover and pursue ways to live for the good of the world. That we would be a people practiced in the the art of living as a people sent to give witness to the kingdom of God, working the word of God into our lives and then working it out in practical witness and service among our friends and colleagues and neighbors and family. Would you join me in that prayer? Could you imagine what would happen in the life of this congregation if we prayed those things? If we prayed for one another that we together would be focused and centered on Jesus Christ, expectantly looking for Him to show up in our midst, actively responding to His invitation. If we would Pray that we would be truly given to one another in mutual and accountable relationship to one another. And if we prayed that as a people, that we would, give, that we would live for the good of the world, penetrating society with witness and service in the name of Jesus Christ. More importantly, would you join with me in that journey? Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, shake our slumbering souls awake. Give us the gift of intrigue that we might look for the person of Jesus in our midst. Lead us into the practices of spiritual hospitality that we would actively yield our lives to Jesus' lordship. That we would give ourselves to one another as a family. And that we live for the good of the world. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301.
extension 117.